This is the Chicago Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Thank you for downloading this episode of Out Front with AJ and Nick. I am Nick Sarandos, joined over the interwebs and Skype by my good buddy, AJ Signeri. AJ, do what you do so very, very well. Hello, people. See, he gets all deep with it, Barry White style. Today's show is going to be, well, it's going to be almost a mental exercise is the best way I think of to put it. And I'm going to let AJ kind of take over from here because we had a conversation last week that kind of got into the Illinois budget crisis. We had a lot of conversations about that. And AJ had an idea for this week's show, and I kind of wanted to let him do it. So, AJ, I'm giving you the keys. All right. So, as Nick said, um, last episode, we talked about the Illinois state budget and how horrendous it is and a few other factors involved with the budget and why the state of Illinois the way it is. And... And during that conversation, you know, thought about doing this episode talking about, you know, what is our, you know, utopia society look like? Because, you know, every one of us kind of fantasizes that we wish our community would be this or that, or we would love to see the United States do this or that. So for this episode, you know, Nick and I are going to kind of show you um, what our utopia looks like and you know and you know we can if we want you know we can critique one another or you know just be what it is you know it's it's a sour utopia and as much as we want to strive towards utopia we know at the end of the day that we're not going to fully get that and everything so let, I'll, I'll start off by just saying this um so in my utopian society, um, it's a very cooperative society. In other words, that a lot of uh, businesses have are around the idea of a, of a cooperative business. Um, the consumer kind of controls the business a little bit while having um, the people who own the businesses operate the business the way it should be also and everything. Um, the idea of free education, the idea of free health care, um, preserving and conserving our environment. And by that, I mean having more open preservation and not adding more roads to open lands and everything. Going towards more sustainable energies, um, not just wind and solar, but even geothermal. People are composting. People are creating community gardens that everyone benefits from having a food forest that people can go to and relish, you know, getting apples, peaches, whatever can grow in your area. You, you can't, everything. first of all, I have to stop you. You can't get peaches from a forest. Peaches come from a can and they were put there by a man. Okay. Just, I'm sorry. Are you one? Are you one of the dead presidents at this point? I'm sorry. Do you mean the president? It's not the dead presidents. You mean one That's of right, the presidents the of the States. States of America? The there great... was a band called Dead Presidents. No, there was a movie called Dead Presidents. Well, there was also a hip hop group called Dead Presidents. Was there really? Did they steal yeah. their name from the bad movie? Yeah. It's actually not a bad movie. It's a great movie. I don't know why I said that. It's, it's a fun. A good movie. It's a fun movie. Uh, so your utopia would consist of people essentially embracing a more, I don't know how to put it except to say an urban agrarian lifestyle where you would have, for example, in the city of Chicago, you would have more, uh, readily available, like, as you put it, a food forest, which I really like that term, but basically naturally grown food, but produced on a massive scale for everyone to be able to take part in. Right. I mean, if you look at Chicago, I mean, you can go to places like Jackson Park, Washington Park, Grant Park, you know, and just have this, you know, like you said, urban agrarian type of culture where, you know, food is grown and people can take what they need, not take to be greedy, you know. And but that thing was put that notion off the side for a second. So if you have parks that are open and you have a lot of these food forests, you have a lot of open communal communal gardens. Cause the one thing I liked about, um, daily, the, 
the, the younger daily. Um, the one thing he did do that I liked is having all the businesses in Chicago to have green rooftops. But I felt he could have went further to say, you know, it's fine to have green roofs so you can lower energy costs and everything, but try to maybe grow something on there if it pertains to your building, you know. Um, if there was like a plant fitness in downtown Chicago and they had a roof, you know, it would make sense to him for them to like grow kale, uh, stuff like that, you know, cause if they're promoting health, why not grow healthy foods for the very thing that you're doing? It's an interesting idea. I like the, I, I do like that. Uh, my, my concern is, and, and, and as we, I preface the show by saying that we could, it's a mental exercise. And I'd like to ask you a question, though, and, and as we talk about a utopia, do you think we can have a utopia without limiting greed? Because greed is a, is a part of human, it's part of our daily interactions. So, like you said, you'd love to have people to be able to go there, but wouldn't you be concerned of the person who goes and takes a whole bucket of apples even though they only need five? Well, and that's the thing, you know, and in order to have the kind of utopian society that we want, an actual culture needs to be reconstructed. And in order to do that, you have to instill a certain culture that kind of eliminates greed. And, and I think in order to do that, you know, you have to have this mental exercise that, you know, you don't have to have a large amount of money to get the things that you need, or you need to have a bigger house in order to do the things you want or anything related to those things. Because we already have this idea in our minds that we need an exuberant amount of money in order to get the things that we want. Now, yes, it is something to be said to, we need money to meet certain needs, but in order to meet our basic needs, I mean, anyone can build a home and find clothes, grow food and provide your very basic needs. But in order to build the kind of society that one needs, you kind of need to instill a certain culture in order to have the kind of society that you want. Well, I, I find myself when, when I, discussing the idea of, you know, where do you want to go with society going forward and, and greed, not even the, the biggest issue, but the problem that I always see is, because it comes down to this question, should hard work be rewarded? Do you think hard work should be rewarded? I think I think work needs to be rewarded. I, I guess it depends on how you define hard work. Well, I mean, if because, you... Because, I mean, no, no, that's no, the no, same, I, I, same I, argument about, you know, should the factory worker get more money than the person building the business? That, and that's... And that, no, I understand that, and that to me is is the great question of of our mm-hmm. age. I think even more than income inequality or the environment is going forward to try to get to some form of because this is what I believe, AJ. Here's my vision of a utopia. In my utopia, money as we understand it is drastically changed, and it is not nearly as important a factor into getting your basic necessities, your water, your food, heating, shelter, clothing. Those things aren't as driven by money. However, I do feel that if someone puts in the time and goes to college and gets a four-year degree and then let's say a master's degree and does that kind of work, that there is something to be said for rewarding it. However, if somebody stays in the same industry Let's say somebody comes out of high school and gets a job as a plumber and stays as a plumber for the same amount of time that somebody is in college, then I would argue that the plumber should be paid the same amount as the person who got out of college because an academic education is hard work, but so is being a plumber for 10 years. So when I say should hard work be rewarded, I mean should people who go above and beyond what would normally be considered part of their job be rewarded for doing so? Because when you take that away you take away people's motivation part of what the idea of to me of getting rid of greed 
did you ever see? I'm, I'm assuming you saw Firefly, the TV show. Obviously, it's a oh, week. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. You saw Serenity, the movie? Yeah. Okay. For those of you who haven't seen Firefly or Serenity, it's a, what would you say, AJ, a space western? Oh, yeah. It's definitely a space, space western. Okay. But one of the big plot points of the movie that they make is they go to a planet where the Empire, for lack of a better term, has chemically induced the planet to take away greed and aggression out of the population through drugs. And as a result, people just laid down and died because without those necessary components of their humanity, there was no need for, they felt that the struggle wasn't worth going through. And the reason that I bring that up is I don't know if you can have humanity as we understand it without aggression and greed. Because part of what motivates people is to get, is the jealousy of what other people have and trying to get it for themselves. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting question because utopia is a great idea, but the actual steps to get there are, are is what we're actually talking about. And, and to me, that's, that's the biggest hurdle is what happens with somebody who either goes above and beyond or do you attempt to just make everybody work at an even kill? Cause that doesn't necessarily sustain itself either. So it's, 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 it's when I start thinking about this stuff and we talk about a utopia that I realize that uh, it's next to impossible to ever happen. And what's most likely going to happen is we're just going to have to keep going through periods like world war two, where the population just drops off by 25%. En- enjoy your coffee. You're right. Everybody. And I think, um, everyone smile that's that's the scary part is that probably in the next 10 years we might see a population drop you know um rory kind of seen that already with the baby boomers right now you know well not only that but uh, i there's an argument to be made that the earth will eventually release a virus to take rid of get rid of all of us anyway so well there's that too i mean the z virus or whatever the hell that thing if you've seen world war z then i'm on board with that um (laughs) I'm just saying. Well, the I'll only problem, the only pro- I was going to say, the only problem with that, AJ, is neither of us are Brad Pitt in that scenario. I would be. No, you wouldn't. You lack his boyish. You lack his boyish good looks. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I have the. No, I don't have that either. No one. <laughs> no one has Brad Pitt's boyish good looks, though not so boyish anymore, Doctor. I was just going to say he's he's not he's no boy anymore. He a man. Um, all right. Well, you know that my utopia is Star Trek, right? Like that's right. that's always been my my benchmark for humanity. That's what we should be striving for: taking to the stars to answer the questions that we can no longer answer on Earth. Where are what are we? What do we come from? What is the meaning of life? I've always i I've never been one of those people who struggled with that question. One of the greatest. Um, moments i've ever seen i think it's in the west wing but it might be from another aaron sorkin but somebody says why should humanity go to mars it is it's the west wing because rob Lowe then turns and goes because it's what's next because we right. went over the hill and we because we were afraid of it so we went over the hill to see what was there and then we kept going and then we went across oceans and we traveled the sky and we went under the water and now our next step is to go to mars why because it's there and that's what we should be attempting to do. And after Mars, we go further and we keep going further to try to find whatever it is that peace that all of us search for in our hearts that some people fill with relationships. Some people fill with food. Hi. Some people fill with whatever. And at the same time, it's, it's never quite there. So I believe that the, the desire and the, the desire to acquire more knowledge is mankind's greatest feat because the average animal doesn't care what's over the hill unless there's food. We go over the hill just to see. We're, we're the only species on the planet that explores and looks beyond and asks the, the questions. It's the difference between us and animals. And so when I think about a utopia, it's to me that we should be focusing on that. But I don't see... But a great example is last night we had the, as we record this, yesterday was the Iowa caucuses. And you had two people, the 2016 Iowa caucuses, aliens who eventually find this podcast 20,000 years down the road, that 
two very different versions of the future and what we should be trying to do were presented and voted on by two separate parties in, in their debates. And those two positions are so diametrically opposed that I don't know where the middle is that allows us to accomplish anything. If you, AJ, were to try to plan a utopia going forward, aside from the agrarian stuff, just dealing with human beings' need to be greedy, what would you, can you conceive of a way that that can be done? Is it education, do you think? Do you think education is the answer to dealing with it? It has to be education. I mean, we have to educate people that, you know, we never, I guess greed was there, but greed, has different faces over the decades and centuries. Yes, of course. But at the same token, there's also indicators that greed was never the overall thing in society. And it's only a few people who inserted greed in order to get the things that they want and everything. So, I mean, it is about education to teach people. It's like, you know, this is what, other societies have done, you know, I mean, you can look in various Asian cultures and some little indigenous societies in Asia don't inject greed at all. It's very cooperative. It's very about a mutual aid of helping one another and certain people rotated of these people can go out and hunt or gather. These people are going to take care of the children. These people are going to take care of the elders. And then a whole bunch of people are going to cook and everything. And it's not just there. It's places in Africa. There's places in South America. We've even had it with Native Americans here in the United States and Canada and Mexico. So Do me a favor, stop for a second. Because this is one of those things that I've always heard. That greed is, in many ways, a Western civilization thing. Do you feel that that's true? Um. No, because again, I, like I said before, it's, you know, greed has taken on many faces because, you know, I can make an argument that Genghis Khan was greedy yes. and what he wanted to do and everything. Um, God, Joseph Stalin was trying to knock down my shitty wall. He's done and everything. Um, what, um, I can't think of their names, but, um, the, the, in, excuse me, the, the conflict between Pakistan and India. There is a conflict there and everything. So it's not entirely a Western idea. Um, greed has happened everywhere. You know, it's, it's in various tribes in Africa. It's an indigenous part of Brazil. I mean, it's everywhere. It depends on what greed looks like. It, it's To me, the, the idea of greed is, is such a... And I wonder if we're maybe using the term incorrectly because greed implies money in today's world, at least in our civilization. But as you're saying, greed has taken on many faces. It's the person who wants another man's wife or the person who wants, you know, the field that they have because their field isn't nearly as good. And you can go back through the ages to look at different versions of it. I mean, you, you pointed out Genghis Khan. I could make an argument that the Visigoths who conquered Rome. Right. You know, were greedy of who wanted Rome and they coveted what Rome have, which is a form of greed. But the way out of where we're at right now, you you see these politicians start talking, AJ, and they all use the phrases, you know, we're, we are at an important point in our history. We are at a turning point in human civilization. We're at a turning point in the United States of America. And the truth is, the answer to a lot of the problems that we have is an answer that most of us, myself included, I can't speak to you, but a lot of people are uncomfortable with, is the idea of sacrifice. I think we've talked about this before, that the true way to solve the problems of the world is to educate people on the necessary, on the nec- the need of all of us to be willing to sacrifice some of our creature comforts for the betterment of all of us. And I don't know if mankind, especially Western civilization, is inclined to make those sacrifices. What do you think? I don't think people in this century is willing to sacrifice because there have been other sacrifices that have happened in the past that they're not willing to make sacrifices today. 
Um, and I've seen that in various areas in the United States where there's people who are making sacrifices to this day for the sake of having better public schools, having community gardens, having whatever. And they're making those sacrifices, but people are not willing to sacrifice themselves or in order to make that change. I was just at a meeting um, yesterday. I work with a bunch of recovering um, addicts. And that was like the very thing that we were talking about, um, especially in the small town area that I live in, that there's people in this area who are willing to make changes but there's others who are not willing to be interactive in making those changes because they either feel complacent to what's going on. Um, they don't know how to do it. So they just kind of become more introverted in attitude and other related things. So it's the same thing about building a utopia Unless people are willing to sacrifice to make the necessary changes that need to happen is the only way we can get a utopia. And many people in the past have done that. And even though those utopias have never gone through fruition or they had it for like a moment and it's now gone is because no one is willing to help out with the cause. Is your idea of a utopia very similar to not Soviet communism, but pure communism as it's idealized? Like, yeah. So, I mean, because I know you mentioned when we were talking about the, doing this the show, idea of socialism and communism, as well as anarchism, not state communism like Stalin had, or what Tito did in Yugoslavia, or what Mao did in China. But that's really Capitalism is what he created in China. So um, so it's not more about the state controlling everything. It's the very idea that you, when you inject love, you inject mutual aid, you inject, you know, liberating oppressed communities in order to have that kind of more democratic society that we all want to have. If... All right, let's let let's let we we talked this is a mental exercise. You AJ Signeri, my very good friend, uh, decide in twenty years. Screw t- twenty years. That's too far down the road technology wise. Let's say that the Democrats, which is what I think will happen, uh, unless uh, if Bernie Sanders wins the nomination, let's assume a Republican wins the White House because that's what I think is going to happen, and we get four years of. Let's not say Trump because I don't think Trump can win. So let's say it's Cruz. So we get four years of of just the far right wing insanity and conservative values that they want. It's four years later. It is 2020. Wow, that's a TV show. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> you, AJ, are elected president of the United States of America. Your first piece of legislation would be what? Oh, we're playing this game. So, well, we want to build to a utopia, first, right? So, let's just assume that you and I are in a position of influence. So, I'm going to say, you, what's your first piece of legislation? What is the most important thing to you to move us away from the collapsing society that we both seem to think that we're kind of in? Free housing. Interesting. Free housing I on what scale? That my first thing will be free housing. On what scale? On what kind of scale? For on a national scale. Okay. For people who are working with the Department of Housing, HUD, um, the Department of Interior, and the Department of, um, probably the Department of Labor as well, more than likely, and construct a plan to have foreclosed homes that are, have been foreclosed or even buildings that were once manufacturing jobs, but somehow they can't do anything with them, refurbish them, and create them for housing for people. There's been many, 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 many buildings I've seen, primarily in the Midwest, where vacant buildings have sat there for 10, 20, almost 30 years, 
and no one has done anything with them. And if they would just like rehab them to a point and then just have the homeless live there, they have shelter. You don't have to worry about them being on the streets. You don't have to worry about them panhandling. You don't have to worry about city ordinances of arresting homeless people or giving them a five of $500 I can spring through the Illinois or anything like that. So you're freeing up laws that are non, are non-necessary and you're actually providing something that people need to meet their basic human right. I like it. It's, it's, it's simple, it's easy, and it's a practical solution to a problem. Which is one thing that I feel is sorely lacking in today's political climate is practical solutions to to real problems, and that's that's not bad. Mine is even mine is is not simpler, but mine is almost a a twenty twenty version of the New Deal. I would reenact the um, the workers. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I can't remember all the workers' name. progress administration. Yes, and the Tennessee Valley Authority kind of stuff. And I, w- I would do, I would do massive public works to rehab the infrastructure of the United States of America by putting people to work and using government money to subsidize and pay to get, get people working, to get people job experience and be able to make the country ready for what's going to be happening in the next 100 years. If we stand pat on our highways, if we stand pat on our railroads, if we stand pat on our shipping lanes and how we deal with just how we move stuff across this country within 50 years, it's not going to matter how great our technology is because we're not going to be able to get anything anywhere. So the first thing I would do, and because we have such the, the unemployment number, I believe AJ is at 13%. But if you look at the stats that it's like livable wage employment is like, like 40, right? Like nobody has right. it, it, it's it that. And that's the real number. People always point to the unemployment number because it's, it's easier to understand. But the actual living wage unemployment, that's the one that matters. And that's it. I think 37.5 the last time I checked. And that's the number that needs to change. I would, as a part of the New Deal stuff, I would raise the minimum wage to $25 an hour. I would reduce, I would make it a law that CEOs can only make 10 times more than the lowest paid employee at their company. Okay. So if you've got a guy who's working part-time in the mailroom and clears $1,000 a month, congratulations. You can only make $100,000 a month. Now let me give you my one of my top 10 policies that would be the most controversial. You ready? I am. I, I, I allowed you Reparations. to... Okay. Through the Department of Interior... Now, how does one do that? I thought about this, and I am of the opinion that if you have areas that are operated through the Department of Interior, various national museums or something like that, that has a mission to it, then a portion of those emissions goes towards a reparations fund. You and I will eventually have to have a long discussion about reparations because I'm one of those people who just I, I I'm not for reparations. So and not just for African Americans, but for Native Americans as well. I mean, hey, if, if that's what you in, in your in your utopia, if that's something that you feel needs to be done, that's great. I'm I'm part of my whole deal has been that I would very much like to see a moving past of historical mistakes um, and almost, a, I don't want to say a reset because that's that's dismissive, but more of a, you can't go back and solve every mistake that was made. So what we can do is, like to me, a utopia would, would start with a list of what are the 10 most important things to fix right now that we can fix. Infrastructure can be fixed. You know, tax codes can be fixed. I would, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the stuff that you know is easy, but it, it's just being bogged down by special interests for so long that no one is taken care of. But I, I, I'm curious in, in your idea of doing reparations through the museum and stuff. Well, what about the monies for the, to keep the museums running? Or do you take it off of what they make profit wise? 
profit-wise. So, so obviously, you know, this has never been. We're just two old socialists. We hate profits. But, you know, everything's I have seen in, and I actually thought about this for probably four years on, you know, the idea of reparations. I've had many discussions with people about reparations. What would that look like? Instead of saying, hey, just write a check. Because really, you, we just can't write a check. The government can't do that. Um, and I think if you do it through means like some sort of New Deal-esque type of thing, um, that you can actually do something that is a reparation. Um, because, and again, reparation is a whole different episode, so I will s- summarize it by saying this. I don't see reparations as a continual pain for certain demographics in the United States. I see reparations as a one-time thing and not just a continual from now into perpetuity, you're getting paid. But what do you do in this? I I don't want to spend the whole time getting bogged down in specifics and stuff, but I would ask you, what would you do if after you've done that, somebody comes forward and goes, well, we also demand reparations for this. Would you then put the program back into effect or would you kind of basically do the we've done this it's done stop no i think i think it has to be that one-time thing because i mean between two major groups between native americans that were here are here as well as the african americans that were brought here um i see those two as the two major groups that would need the reparations now asians you know do I see it has reparations? Uh, I, I like to have a further conversation about that because I'm kind of on the fence about that a little bit. Um, but I see it as a, as, a, as a one-off type of situation. But again, I mean, I, I don't see things like this, things even like Bernie Sanders talks about, about universal health care. I don't see that as doing it right away once you're in your first four years of office. I see those kinds of things as your second year of office type of thing. Trying to do the more practical um, kind of policies that you can do in the first four years and to show that it can work in everything and then trying to build more of your legacy in your second four years because your first four years is not really your legacy years. It's really your second term as president to build your legacy on what that is. Because really I see if Obama should have done his Affordable Health Care Act, that should have been second-year term, not a first-year term. Oh, see, I disagree. That's uh, I, I feel that the first uh, 18 months that Obama was in office and had a majority in all three levels, of, in all three of the legislative branches and executive branches, should have just fired off an entire Democratic agenda and done it that way. But they didn't. What? But they didn't. Right. So that's always. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, they didn't do it the first time around. So why would they do it a second time? Yeah. I also think that's the last. Just as an aside, I also think that's the last time you're going to have a Democratic majority in all three branches. I don't think that will happen again for at least another forty years. I, I honestly believe I'm that. Say, I think statistically, you'll probably see it in thirty years. But after after the Republicans have just locked us down on everything, so right. But going forward with uh, this utopia idea, aside from how we get there, walk me through, AJ, even though you're driving, but let me just ask this question. Walk me through what your utopia looks like in the city of Chicago on a daily basis to your average. Say somebody's got bachelor's degree in education. Let's go to the teacher. What is a teacher's life like in your utopia? Um, specifically for education, what I see if they have a degree in education, then we try to put them in one of the free schools. And in those free schools, they would be teaching. They would also be part of the administrative roles. They would also be part of the outreach to help kids who are not in school to either put them in school or to develop something for with them and everything in their neighborhoods. Because um, I, I see you know, education in Chicago more as a neighborhood thing, not as a citywide thing. So I see more various um, neighborhood um, free schools in the state of Chicago. 
Let me ask um, you about that really, it, Let me ask you about that yeah. really quick. The the idea of, of local educa- of education being controlled locally sounds great. Um until you start getting into the idea of what different areas believe because what we would teach here in Chicago would be very different than what they would teach in Amarillo, Texas. So how do you deal with that? Because we see that even now where outside of major democratic areas uh, the Vietnam War is taught very differently than it is in other locations. Uh, civil rights movement in Chicago, for example, is a three-week part of your U.S. history class in both eighth grade and your sophomore year of high school. In other places, it's, you know, a day. So would you still have the federal government mandating certain things to be taught a certain way? To no. make Really? So you would leave it up to each individual I, I, area? I, in, in fact, if, if if you asked me if I was governor of Illinois, what I would do, one thing that as governor I would say is that we would not have the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, tell us what to do. Really? I would I would have the General Assembly to tell them to stand up and repeal any thing that the U.S. Department of Education has shoved down state of Illinois' throats, whether it be race at the top, no child left behind, no, whatever those it are is, funding programs. Those are funding strip programs. It all, strip it all away, and let's actually focus on our state and working on a kind of, not a statewide curriculum, but curriculums that are appropriate for our students. But can that work, man? I mean, honestly, can can you have... Two places in the same country teaching two very different versions of history and have that work. Can that function? That's the thing. I mean, you're already having one textbook company in Texas that's governed by six people to tell kids on what textbooks they should and shouldn't read. Okay. So the books they have right now in school is dictated by a board of six people in Texas on what the textbooks they should be having, the language in those textbooks that should be in there, who the publisher should be, and then ship them off to every boy and girl from D.C. to Oakland, California. Yeah, so that needs to be changed. So, I mean, that's already there now. <laughs> you know, I mean, if I if I if I really want to be a people would want to coin me as quote unquote dictator, I would have every child in the state of Illinois have. Howard Zinn. <laughs> I was going to mention it. Everything. I was totally going to mention that. Yeah, I think every school kid, it's a, it's one of my favorite lines on uh, the TV show community. Is uh, They have a great line in it where they go, do you like Ray Badbury's Fahrenheit 451? And the one woman goes, yeah, I love it. I think every kid should be forced to read it. And it's just like if you've read the book, like that's just such a perfect joke for that. For that yeah. book, and it's it's like the same thing with Howard's Ends of People's History. It's like, yes, this book is so important that we should totally defy all the rules of this book and force people to read it. You know, one of my favorite authors, and he studied at the Masonian Institute, um, and he's a professor in Vermont, of all places. Um, Hippie. He, Dr. James Lowen, he wrote a book um, called Lies My Teacher Told Me, and he studied the evolution of history books, U.S. history books in the United States. And over time, what he saw is like a lot of it, a lot of information has been taken out from it, um, whether that's because of bias, whether it's because of the publisher, whatever, whatever the factors were. But he saw a lot of information. One of them, things he pointed out, was like Helen Keller. Every boy and girl who knows about Helen Keller either watches the movie Miracle Worker or gets dragged to see a play of it. Right. Or they understand like, here is a mute deaf child who fought and fought so that she can actually read via Braille as well as trying to speak to some sort of degree. But we don't hear the other side of Helen Keller who went to Cambridge, Massachusetts, who became a feminist, who fought for a more democratic, progressive society and everything. We never hear that side. We just hear about 
the young Helen Keller and everything, you know? No, I agree with you, but then you get to be in your 30s, and then somebody says, who's Helen Keller, and almost always is confused with Anne Frank. Well, that's true also. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was an episode of that. I heard that was, no, that was Anne Frank. Yeah. That was Helen Keller. No, no that was Anne, was Anne Frank. Frank. It's just... <laughs> Oh no! Is that is that is that Clerks? It's Clerks too. Yeah, right? I think it was. Yeah, yeah, it's Clerks too. Yes, it was. Clerks yeah, it's Clerks too. Yeah. So I guess he is like Anne Frank. What with the with the hiding and everything. No, you sort of. He's like Helen Keller with the disability. You racist. <laughs> I love those. I love those movies. Um, it's 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 an interesting idea of what you would want society to be and what. You would try to drive humanity forward if you, if you were able to. But the truth is, it's, it is education though, that I feel is the most important thing. But I don't think that history is important, but I don't know if history can be taught the way that it has been taught, uh, in America for so long. Because like I said, different places teach different things. And I wonder if a furthering of science education and the the study of the human psyche would go forward into teaching a new generation of young people because that's who it matters going forward and there isn't there is something that's going on in the country that people the established political commentators and republicans and democrats aren't acknowledging which is the generation the baby boomer generation that you and i always talk about our parents generation uh as well are and, and I, I, to anyone who's lost anybody, this isn't me trying to be dismissive, but that generation is dying off. Both of them are. And the generations that are coming up, even uh, conservative Christians of a young age are much more accepting of homosexuals than their previous generations. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Which I, is, I would agree with that. I mean, and, and racism has... in. In my generation, it's there. In our generation, it's still there. But I feel like the one coming up now, the world is so... And, and, and the one true strength, AJ, of globalization has been an exposure to all sizes and creeds that when I was a kid, when you were a kid, China was still this far-off land that we didn't really know much about. You know what I'm saying? Right. It it was it, it was there. We knew about it. People had been there, but you, you didn't get information out of China on a on a by, second by second basis. The internet has changed all of that, so the world is truly more connected. If something happens in a village in Africa, Boko Haram, for example, has come in and killed eighty seven people uh, over the weekend. I think it was over the weekend. It might have been Friday, and we know about it. You know, within an hour, that didn't happen back in the day, so. Globalization has kind of taken the idea of racism and shifted it. I don't know if it's so much more anymore based on how somebody looks or what their background is. I believe that in the newer generations, it's more of a classism that is going to be the biggest issue to fight going forward. The, 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 the 99, the 1%, however you want to put it, it's, it's, and that's even dismissive of what the issue will be, but going forward we're also connected that racism has started to shift into a different kind of way and and looking towards a utopian future there is an argument to be made that the, the more you educate people on how other people around the world live and you have to be accepting of that can make a major difference in where the world goes you know from this point forward unless well, i think but I think in order to address what you're just mentioning, we can't look at things like racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia as all separate things and trying to tackle each one. It's like, okay, we, we got no, we ended racism, now it's on to this. No, I, we all have to look at it as one big intersectional issue. Because you can't talk about racism without talking about classism. You can't talk about classism without talking about sexism, because they're all intertwined. Oh, prejudice in general as a, as as a, as a topic is what you mean. That it's not just one thing, but just the idea of prejudice in general. Well, yeah, because I mean, I mean, we talked on our show the episode about the state budget. You know how I was pointing out how the South Side of Chicago and the water, Metro Water 
reclamation district at that sanitation plant doesn't get the same kind of treatment that the Northside plant does and everything. And to me, that's both a racist and classist issue. So you're telling me an area that is predominantly African-American Latino, who also are very low income, by the way, are not getting the kind of sanitation that the predominant white upper middle class Northsiders are getting. No, you're you're absolutely right about that, and and then the just that in and of itself is one of the great moments where you can go. Well, if somebody were to go, racism doesn't exist. You go, well, let me tell you about the two water treatment plants in the city of Chicago. And from that moment on, you you basically the argument is moved because that's clearly when you get down to it, that's the only the only other argument is well because they're poor, which in many ways. <laughs> You know, those are the two arguments. Why is that the case? Well, because they're either black or because they have no money. In either case, that's why that's happening. It's gotten to the point, though, where these discussions about prejudice in general, you're absolutely right. It, it can't just be a discussion about one form of prejudice, oh, we've beaten that, move on. It's it's an ongoing struggle, to be sure, and, and something that needs to constantly be fought against. There's also an argument to be made that humankind needs to be willing to make the leap that there isn't always an enemy, that there isn't always somebody out to get you or to stop you. Wouldn't you agree? Right. I mean, I think that I mean, there's an actual fear out there that people are out to get people, and they're not. It, it, it bothers me now that... It, bothers it used me. to be at one time that, you know, if the Chinese, when the Chinese were here out west in California, that if they're if they're here, they're going to take away your job. Right. And you see them opening up various restaurants, various businesses, they're trying to be entrepreneurs and everything. And people are like, oh, shit, you're right. They're taking away our jobs. No, they're not. First of all, AJ, <laughs> I'm sorry. One area. I'm sorry. As a South Park fan, you're not saying it. AJ, as a South Park fan, you're not saying it correctly. It's not they took our jobs away. It's they took your job. That's right. They took a dog. Sorry. Go ahead. Continue. No, I mean, I mean, that's, that's the very basis of the fear that someone's out to get someone, whether it's on race whether it is age, whatever it is, you know, I mean, how many times have you heard, well, you know, these young, younger people are going to take away your job. Yeah. Or, well, well and, and that's what, and that's what irritates me to no end. It's like, well, there's a whole bunch of younger people. And if you don't get your education, then they're going to take your job away. And it's like, no, it's bullshit. You need to move on so you can have younger people to, produce the productivity and the longevity of your business i sometimes wonder aj if utopia is even possible in today's world with the expected longevity of life i mean you, the my ground be no bicentennial man I'm, I'm telling that right now what's up i'm not going to be no bicentennial man no and i don't think any of us want to be would you want to live to be 200 years old you'd have to be you'd be what's the darth Vader? you'd be more machine now than man that's right um for the record, I'm all for that. If you can turn me into a cyborg to keep me my brain alive longer, I'm I'm all I'm all cool with it. Until you start talking about reprogramming my brain, at which point I I, I would freak out. The, but I wonder if life expectancy rising and growing at the rate that it's been growing, people used to stop working when they were 55. That's not the case anymore. Now it's 65 is generally the age that people retire. By the time you and I are getting ready to retire, it'll be 70 to 75. So there's no, and there is, I always like to tell people this story, and, and I may have told it on the podcast before, and I'm sorry if I have, but Kevin Smith tells the same three stories on all of his podcasts, so I really don't care. I've heard him tell the clerk story like 40 times. But this That's is, a story. it's a great story, but it's, tell a different story. Um, Here's here's the thing. When I worked, and it's 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 one of those stories that's kind of apropos of what I'm talking about here. 
When I worked at a cell phone company uh, selling cell phones, we had four stores, one in Northbrook, one in Glenview, one in Lincolnwood, and actually two in Glenview, one in Northbrook, one in Lincolnwood. And I was there for three years. First year I was there, business was great. Second year I was there, business was okay. Third year I was there, business started to really slow down for the stores, and my boss would call and be like why do you guys think that we're losing sales and i i didn't say anything i didn't say anything. finally after like the third time he called us in and read us all the riot act and all this stuff i looked at him and said mitch here's the issue and he goes what i said you are have one company that you're selling for i'm not gonna name it but they don't exist anymore and i said you have the one company that you're selling for and he goes yes i said okay hypothetically in any given customer base 50% are going to go to your competitor automatically. That's just business. They may be willing to switch over to you, but once they switch over to you and then switch back, they're never coming back. And it's the same thing the other way. They might leave you for a while, go to the competition, but if they come back, they're never going back again. That's just business. You can get people to try something, but if they try it and decide they don't like it and then go back to what they originally had, they will never leave what they originally had. Do you understand what I'm saying, AJ? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm not, th that's not the point though. My point to him was you have four stores in a five town radius. At some point you hit market saturation and there isn't anybody left to sell phones to. When you start looking at jobs, there is a point, whether we want to admit it or not, that there are no more jobs to create. You can create new industries, and that will create new jobs. But for the most part, as things stand pat right now, because let's face it, even in today's world of new technology, the old version of employment has adapted to the technology. The technology hasn't adapted and created new forms of employment. If anything, they've limited the amount of jobs that are available. My point is that as the life expectancy goes up and those job positions stay filled by qualified people who do good work, and you have a large, larger number of young people coming up looking for the jobs, and those people aren't leaving because they stay in their jobs, at some point you hit saturation. There's nowhere for people to go to fill. There's no gaps to fill. Does that make sense? Right, right. And that is a big factor in what's going on, which is why... I, I made the joke earlier, but it is true that there's going to come a point where we either need to create all new industries of jobs, we need to revamp how we look at how people work in this country, or we just need to kill a fuckload of people off. And I'm just saying. I mean, no, Bill Burr makes a great joke. In, in, I don't know. Do you know the comedian Bill Burr? Yeah. He has a joke in one of his stand-up specials. He goes, look, I don't want to be the one to say it. I, I don't want to be the, you know, I, it's not a nice thing, but realistically, we need to lose about 50% of the people on the planet. Because then that would solve most of the world's problems. And that's the truth. Because we have so many people and nowhere to put everybody. And the only explanation, the only way out of it is either to limit the number of people, to create whole new industries that get us out of it, or to go to other planets to make room for all of us. And if we don't do one of those things, we're just going to be standing in, in, a, in a society where the same amount of people have jobs, but at some point there's no new jobs to make. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, what drives me crazy is every time I read either like Harvard Business Review or watch various business um things on youtube and stuff like that they always talk about how to reinvent yourself but i don't hear anybody at harvard or at wharton at university of pennsylvania or at the booth school at the university of chicago anywhere that talks about how about the radical notion of saying let's get rid of this shit and start something new because I think in, in order to do that, we have to have a different kind of economy. You know, you can't just keep saying, well, it's, it's the creative class. You know, Richard Florida's famous book of, you know, it's the flight of the creative class. A whole bunch of people are going to, who are creative types are going to be pushing higher GDP and stuff like that. So we need to invest in all that and everything. It's like, no, you need to read Robert Putnam's book, Bowen Alone, to understand why people are not doing the very things they used to do before 
and in order in order to create new, if not better, industries. You know, so if and until people realize that, I don't think we're going to progress at all when it comes to jobs or economy. This was supposed to be. So a- we have about a few minutes left here. Yes. How would you, Nicholas Sorrentos? Grand Poobah, editor-in-chief of the Chicago Podcast Network. Yes, continue. How would how would you summarize? I mean, you talked about utopia. How would you summarize on how how would you get how would you recruit people to your utopian society? Oh, AJ. How would you summarize that? How would I recruit people to my to my ideals? What's I can tell book? you what's the marketing? Here's the sad thing about me, AJ, is that I truly believe in the power of reasonable discourse and conversation. So through reasonable discourse and conversation, I would take other people's opinions, I would weigh them against what I have myself, and I would allow people in, people's input into what goes forward. But most importantly, I would simply tell people, look, the choices are simple. Adapt or die. And if we don't adapt, we will all die. And at the end of the day... I don't know about you, AJ, but I don't want to live on a planet where only 1% of the population is left. Do you? No. So, adapt or die. That's that's how I would recruit people. We are at a point in human history where we need to adapt or die. We can use technology. Technology is an amazing thing, but it is also very dehumanizing. So, you need to show people that if we don't adapt as a culture to the world we live in, if we continue to live a 18th century, because that's what I feel like we do, an 18th century economic and social model, which is what we have, we will never, ever come out of this. And we are dangerously close to reentering the dark ages, where natural resources are scarce, where the ability to move goods in between countries is, is gone, and where you have strife and war on every corner of the globe because everyone is just fighting to stay alive. And so I would say it's adapt or die. It's adapt or go into a world where we are all just fighting each other all the time. And if that's the world you want, bring it on, baby. I got two swords and a gun, so I'm ready to go. Okay. I mean, I, 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 honestly, that, that that's what I would say. It, 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 we are at adapt or die. We either adapt or we die. That 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 would be my recruiting push. It ain't the happiest recruiting push in the world, but it's 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 honest. I, I you know to I guess bridge from that because I, I like that directness of that you know because I mean why I'll never be president. I'm even more direct really than Bernie. Is. I'm sorry. Um, I guess the way I would re- recruit people is this: there have been other kinds of utopian societies before. There are models today that are happening as we speak. Canada. In order to have that kind of structure, to have that kind of utopian society. So in order to have the kind of utopian society that I want to build, people need to keep participating in those areas that are already going on right now and then bridge further from that in order to transition from the current economic system that we have into a much better one. Well, I do believe we have reached the end of our mental exercise, AJ, and have come out yeah. of it not happy, but sadder than when we went in. It feels like it feels like my spinning class. Okay, just hard the, and intense. I was gonna say, like, is it actual like a bike riding spin class, or are you talking like plate yes. spinning? Because I could I see spin? you, at, I could see you at a plate spinning class. I don't That's know what I do. I don't know what just happened. Um, <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right, AJ. Normally I, I do it, but would you like to do the sign off today? Can you remember all of our addresses and things? No, because you're the Grand Poobah. That's your thing. Fair enough. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Out Front with AJ and Nick. You can find us on Facebook, Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter, Chicago Podcast One. And email us at gmail at Network at gmail.com. That's three ats in one sentence. It makes me sound like an idiot. Other than that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again so much for listening. And uh, AJ. Say goodbye to the wonderful people who tune in to listen to your dulcet tones, baby.
Goodbye, people. And follow me. Yes, follow AJ as well. You can find him on Facebook under, he's got his AJ Signary, and you can find him under his show Firebrand, which we have episodes pending for that as well. Other than that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. We will be back uh, later on in the week, probably talk a little bit more about the outcome of the Iowa caucuses. We would have done it today, but they, they just announced that Hillary Clinton got the official win, but I want to talk to you, AJ, about what... She didn't win! She didn't win! I see. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. We'll have that discussion for you later in the week. Other than that, I believe the phrase I am looking for is, uh, oh yes, we out! It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! You have been listening to the Chicago Podcast Network.